Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Working men and women kept the country from disintegrating during the pandemic. They staffed the hospitals, stocked the shelves, drove the buses, manned the cash registers, cooked and delivered the food, grew the produce, drove the trucks, and collected the garbage. Yet these vital frontline workers were also sacrificed in disproportionate numbers in a system of grotesque inequality. In late 2020 and early 21, at the height of the pandemic, Maximilian Alvarez conducted a series of interviews with workers battling to survive. They did not have the luxury of working from home, ordering what they needed from Amazon and having it delivered. Their jobs, difficult before the pandemic, now came with grave health risks and few benefits or protection. Alvarez, as he does in his podcast, Working People, set out to tell their stories. He raises up the voices and lives of those the commercial media have largely rendered invisible, laying bare the huge divide between the haves and the have-nots. Joining me to discuss his book, The Work of Living, and the untold stories of working men and women is Maximilian Alvarez, who is also the editor-in-chief of The Real News. So I read these stories, and there were certain themes that came out, uh, which I wanted to ask you about. And I want to begin with, uh, which was a constant for uh, even when you're interviewing a burlesque dancer, is the importance of work, not just in terms of exchanging labor for a wage, but in, in terms of its self-importance. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, you know, one of the things that I hope comes through in this book, in the interviews with workers that I do on my podcast, Working People, and here at the, uh, at the Real News Network, right, is working people aren't dumb. Working people hold the world up. And there's so much skill and knowledge and experience in everything that folks do and all the vital forms of labor that they perform to keep society running. And I think that you really see that in all of these interviews, whether it's, you know, me talking with Willie, a gig worker in Texas who details all the ways that he goes, you know, above and beyond to, you know, get people their groceries, to navigate um, the, the, you know, craziness at uh, this or that grocery store, or Kyle, a sheet metal worker in Louisville, who really takes a whole lot of pride in the work that he and his co-workers do Nick, a grave digger in New Jersey, you just hear directly from the people who do this kind of work, all the, you know, attention and accrued knowledge and even love that goes into performing the vital labor that they do. And yet COVID made them ask questions about work and about their place in society that they hadn't asked before. Yeah, I think that honestly, as a society, um, there's still a lot of big questions that we haven't fully confronted um, since the onset of COVID-19 in the spring of 2020. I think the most obvious is that, um, you know, COVID-19 forced all of us to confront our own mortality in a way that perhaps we never had to before. Right. And I think that you're seeing sort of the after effects of that. I do think that, 
you know, COVID-19 was a really concentrated, terrifying experience, but it was also a moment, an extended moment when workers realized that they are essential, right? That the work that, that we do does keep society and the economy running even while, you know, the, the, you know, board members and shareholders and the corporate executives were able to ride out the storm in their second homes. You know, it was people like the folks that I talked to in this book uh, who kept us all from falling into the abyss. And I think that working people, you know, haven't forgotten that. They they know how essential they are. And so, you know, I think that you are seeing that sort of trickle out into, you know, things like the Great Resignation. Record numbers of people quitting their jobs, a lot of whom I've talked to who said, you know, I got to sit down during COVID and think, is this what I want to be doing with my life, right? Should I be accepting kind of the poor treatment that I'm getting at work? Um, Should I be asking for more? If I died tomorrow, would I be pleased with how I've lived my life? And um, but it's also, I think, translated to workers becoming more militant on the shop floor. We've seen a lot of strikes over the past couple years, a unionization wave that's extending into industries that have been very hard to unionize, like the service industry, um, because COVID, again, showed workers how little say they actually have over consequential decisions, whether that be when to open, uh, um, you know, in-person um, schools in person or or what safety measures to implement in restaurants. If working people were the ones bearing the brunt of those decisions but had no input over those decisions, you know, a lot of people realize that actually having a voice on the job and banding together to demand what we need is actually something worth fighting for. And we're seeing that happening all over the place. There's a juxtaposition which you address in the book between the uh, effusive kind of lauding by the wider society of these quote-unquote essential workers. And yet, during the pandemic, they're clearly treated as if they're disposable. Yeah, I think that this is like one of the biggest um, disconnects, right? Or, or, you know, sort of like uh, logical knots that that, um, we're still trying to unravel right now because, you know, I, I, I try to make this clear in the book in the conversations that I have with these 10 amazing human beings, um, that, you know, there was also a lot of good that we saw in each other over the past two and a half years, right? People really, working people showed their mettle, not just at the workplace, but people sacrificed to bring their immunocompromised family and neighbors groceries, right? They found ways even remotely to stay connected to each other and to take care of one another. But, you know, at the same and and also like there are these great moments like the one captured by the great artist Molly Crabapple, who designed the cover for the book, um, you know, where people were standing on their balconies, banging pots and pans in honor of the frontline workers who were risking their lives, many of whom never asked to risk their lives. They were just trying to make a paycheck right at that very scary moment. But I think we collectively acknowledged one another in that way and celebrated one another and you know, corporations and businesses really capitalized on that and took it as a as a marketing opportunity, 
right? So many different businesses celebrated their frontline workers as heroes and even uh, used the opportunity to um, get favorable coverage in the press for giving their workers, quote unquote, hero pay like Amazon, right? Amazon, you know, was touted as, as you know, um, you know, this great benefactor for giving workers hero pay that it then ripped away from workers weeks later and no one, you know, said anything about it. And it, like, it was a very calculated move. The reason that businesses like Amazon did not call it hazard pay is because then they would have to keep paying it as long as the hazard persisted. But calling it hero pay makes it seem like it's just something, you know, given in recognition of heroism. But actually on the shop floor, when workers would raise concerns over um, safety protocols like Christian Smalls at Amazon's um, uh, facility in Staten Island, they were fired for it or they, you know, were, were um, you know, reprimanded for it. And all the while, you know, I talked to Zanny Triunfo Cortez, a nurse in California for this book. She's, you know, understandably, like so many healthcare workers, very bitter about the fact that their hospitals were celebrating the staff as heroes while not listening to those very same staff members when they were saying, here's the PPE that we need. Here are the safe staffing ratios that we need to provide the care that every patient deserves. So workers were really, um, again, held up as these kind of uh, human-shaped cardboard cutouts. But when it actually came to listening to what workers on the shop floor were saying that they needed, they were, as always, comfortably ignored. You do a good job of describing what work conditions are like. Um, there's a one... Uh, person you interview, Nick, who's I, I just was stunned, um, and I'll let you explain it. Um, but and of course, the the pandemic exacerbates the uh, difficulty and danger of these work conditions. Um, but just lay that out. I mean, there are things that came with being a grave digger that I didn't expect, including, of course, direct exposure to toxins. But I'll, you can talk a little bit about Nick's work and, and, and what happened during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, the interview with Nick Galupo, a grave digger um, in central, north central New Jersey, was one of the first ones that I, I recorded for the book. So in a lot of ways, it kind of set the tone um, for the other interviews that I did. And it really, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll let folks read it. I mean, but I think like it's a really fascinating um, conversation that he and I got to have where we learn more about him, how he fell into working at a, a you know, a graveyard, um, what that work entailed before the pandemic hit and the working conditions that he describes there. Right. I mean, without going into full depth, I mean, he talks about how we're not talking about your typical flat suburban memorial park. Right. We're talking about an older um, graveyard with differing soil contents um, that largely serves a Jewish um, population where the sort of customs and traditions are to bury people the day that they die or at latest one day after. So what that means is they're not embalmed. Um, they're not being buried in, you know, metal caskets. They're being buried in quarter-inch pine boxes with wooden dowels so that everything is decomposable. Um, and again, it's a very old or it's an older cemetery where you have this older equipment that guys are jerry-rigging to keep uh, to keep going. Um, and there he describes it, Nick does, as a fast-paced construction site for the dead, right? And then, um, then COVID hit. 
right? And he talks about those early days in the pandemic, right? New York was really the epicenter of it in that kind of area of the country. And Nick saw that. He and his coworkers saw that in the graveyard because he tells me that, you know, on average, they do about four or five burials a day at this cemetery before the pandemic hit. In those early months, that number tripled, right? And so these guys are running all over the place, trying to do an essential service, right? You can tell when when Nick is talking how much care he takes with the work that he does. He takes very seriously the responsibility of offering a, you know, like families a chance to send their loved ones off into the great beyond, uh, you know, as best they can. And so he he understands, you know, like the high stakes of doing what they do right. But when you are trying to do that, um, you know, when you've got, you know, 15 burials lined up one after the other, um, and you're running around this, this, you know, uh, graveyard where, you know, some, uh, parts of the graveyard are, have water tables that are full, others where you have cave-ins, right? It really does paint a gruesome picture, but I think it makes you appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the value, the invaluable work that folks like Nick do to provide that sort of peace and comfort that so many of us depend on when we bury our loved ones. I want to talk about a little, he has to dig these, sometimes remove these disintegrated coffin. Talk about that because it's, I mean, talk about what happens. Well, like I said, um, you know, in this particular cemetery, given the um, population that it predominantly serves, the burial practices that are required of folks like Nick and the geographical makeup of the cemetery that he's working at, um, you know, we don't go into the goriest details of what he does, but you definitely get a sense of, you know, how packed that cemetery is. Um, and again, when folks aren't embalmed, um, when you have um, soil that gets uh, a lot of water in it, um, when people are buried so closely together, you can kind of use your imagination that if like someone is being buried right next to a site where two people were buried the year before and there's been cave-ins, I mean, the one detail that Nick gives is like they got to put these shale bars in between um, the two graves on the side so that essentially human remains don't fall into the hole where a new person is being buried, right? And and again, I think the thing that Nick says that is very profound is he says, like, our job is not just to bury holes and put caskets in it. Our job is to provide families with a sense of peace at a very critical moment where they are saying goodbye to their loved ones for the last time, right? And so imagine feeling the burden of of trying to provide that peace when you're working in such a you know, morbid kind of environment where so many things can go wrong and you're dealing with so many, you know, gruesome realities and old equipment. And at the same time, these guys are also terrified of getting sick, right? These well, guys are also, uh, no, go ahead. Th- there's no personal protective equipment, you write, hazmat suits, anything like that. They take, you write, you can get a pair, this is Nick, you can get a pair of leather gloves or something, or you could shove some Vicks or a scarf in your nose if you want. Uh, that, that's, that's all the protection they're given. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he also talks about how like, you know, on construction sites, right. Um, you know, and, and a bunch of other sites where, you know, kind of this sort of fast pace, uh, industrial work takes place. 
you have a lot of OSHA regulations and rules put in place to protect workers, right? And so in a lot of sites, if it's raining outside, right, if there's inclement weather conditions, you know, you're going to shut down the work site for a day. With a graveyard, you can't do that. People die and they need to be buried. Um, and so, you know, rain or shine, snow or sleet, uh, these guys are out there doing this work. And again, it's like it was like the perfect storm that Nick described where burial numbers of burials have tripled. Um, the the um, conditions under which people were being buried uh, were not getting any better all the while. Yeah, like those sort of whatever lax OSHA regulations there are that pertain to graveyards. The fact of the matter is, is that on a day to day reality, management throws those out the window. They say, get those people in the ground. I don't care how you do it. And that's, you know, kind of how Nick understands that because I don't think that folks like Nick necessarily want or agree with that, but they understand the reality in front of them. And this is the, this is what they put up with that a lot of us just never see. Let's talk about Willie. So he's a gig worker. I mean, I found this interesting um, because it highlighted the kind of stress that gig workers are under. He's, he's same with Amazon workers, for instance. I mean, the, they are measured down to the second uh, and their performance is rated on how fast. And yet he's talking about he's a shopper, so he has to get food. Uh, and what happens when there's long lines? What happens, he writes, when he uh, calls uh, shopper support and nobody picks up? That, that kind of stress, can you, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, gig workers, I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of neo-feudalism, frankly, the, the gig, what we call the gig economy. And I would point people to the great work of scholars like Vina Dubal, who've written about this extensively, or listen to folks like Willie or Vanessa Bain, another great worker organizer who's been speaking out about these horrendous conditions that gig workers have been working under even before the pandemic, right? But so many of us, including many people in my own family, were drawn into the promise of the gig economy 10, 12 years ago because it promised that we could be our own boss. It promised a degree of independence. Let me just interrupt because I read in one of the questions, you were a gig worker yourself. In essence, what did you work in a well, so I was a temp. Uh, I was a warehouse temp 10 years ago while my mom and dad were both driving for Uber and Lyft. Um, this was when, you know, the recession hit our family, like millions of other families, very hard. We eventually lost everything, including the house I grew up in. Um, but yeah, like working as a temp, like that's, that's kind of like the proto gig work, right? I mean, you're not hired by the company technically, which essentially means you can get paid less. You can be fired at the drop of a hat. Um, there was even a class action lawsuit, um, filed against the temp agency I worked for because they were stealing our wages so much. But, um, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the promise again for my folks and for folks like Willie was that if you, you know, you can be your own boss. Right. And and actually, if you can make a decent um, take home pay and you can do it on your own time, what we have seen the trend over the past decade is what Bernie Sanders famously called a race to the bottom, where the take home pay keeps going down. And these black box algorithms that determine everything, they determine, like you said, what route people should take uh, from their home or from a, a, a drop off destination to the grocery store. It determines how long that should take. It determines, you know, their their ratings. Right. And, and what they should get paid for this or that delivery. 
And um, what Willie talks about is like right when the pandemic was hitting, Shipped, which is the company he works for, which is the delivery service that is owned by Target Corporation, made adjustments to its algorithm and was telling workers, oh, like, this is going to be good for you. You're going to get more take-home pay. And Willie noticed that his take-home pay was going down. So he started talking to folks online and he talked to like over 500 people in a matter of weeks and was realizing that this was happening everywhere. And again, they have no control over that. And they also have no control over, you know, all the things that can crop up when you're trying to make those deadlines. If you're trying to get a delivery in at like 20 minutes, but say it's around Christmas time and the lines are super long and the checkout, you know, there are only two people at checkout. And maybe the card that ship gives you doesn't work. And so, like you said, you got to call ship customer or shopper service. No one's answering the phone. All the while, your time's clicking down and you have no control over that. But you, as the worker, are the one who take the brunt of it. Your ratings go down, your pay goes down. And if your ratings go down enough, they can kick you off the platform, thus ripping away your lifeline. And so, whenever Willie would raise this with shipped or, you know, post about it on shipped owned um, Facebook groups, he would get viciously ridiculed by the moderators and by fellow shoppers and told that the problem was with him. So this is really what the gig economy does is it puts all the burden onto workers and all the responsibility and all the liability onto workers um, while it gives them, in fact, no control over their schedule. And the algorithm kind of is is the all-seeing boss that tells them what to do every second of every day. Well, he gets so desperate he wants to hire someone to help him so he can make the time slot to stand in a line while he gets the food and they won't let him. Yeah, I, I mean, like, this is like... Again, speaking to the the brilliance, I think, of everyday working people, um, you know, Willie will be the first to tell you that he's um, an introverted guy, right? And uh, he is not a natural-born organizer. It's very uncomfortable for him to talk to so many people. But what I think you see is a, is a guy who realizes that he's getting screwed over. And so he starts digging into the contract. He starts reading the fine print. He starts seeing that there's a problem here. And he kind of forces himself to talk to more people about these issues. And what the, the example that you're um, pointing out was Willie. He's like, I've worked as an independent contractor in construction before. You know, based on what I know from being an independent contractor, like I can bring, say, my daughter with me to stand in line during Christmas time because those lines take forever while I go do the shopping. But in, you know, the shopper's guide that Ship gives us, they tell you that you can't do that, right? And so again, it's kind of forced, it, it's leaving you no option to actually make your quotas and stuff like that. But what Willie also points out is that legally, they can't necessarily do that. So they can essentially walk right up to the line of telling you, you can't have anyone helping you. Um, but within the fine print of the shipped shopper agreement, you actually can do it um, because ship wants to leave itself uh, a back door for if it's ever taken to court to say, oh, no, actually, this is an independent contractor. This is what they're always trying to balance. They want to tell workers that they're independent while taking away any independence that they actually have. Was it in Willie's? Just a little aside that uh, at Christmas, the tips went down. Was that it was some was that yeah. Willie? Yeah. Yeah. Willie, he talks about um, – 
You know, and, and, and there's a lot of factors that go into that, right? Um, but yeah, he was noticing that his tips were going down because he was working twice as hard and still making less. And so he was like, what, something's going on here, right? I mean, but on top of that, he was noticing, people have probably all seen these commercials, right? Whether it's for Shipped or Instacart, they always say like, our shoppers go above and beyond, right? And there are even in these shopper groups on Facebook, people were celebrating ship shoppers for like buying balloons for their customers, right? Or, or feeding their dogs or walking their dogs. And Willie had the gall to ask his fellow ship shoppers, he's like, why am I going to walk someone's dog? If that dog gets loose and gets hit by a car or if it bites me, I'm liable right. for that. Like, I'm not getting paid for that. And yet it's being held up as like, you know, a virtue when in fact, uh, you know, we should not be asked or expected to be doing this when we're already living so close to the bone. I want to talk about the um, – Barbara Ehrenreich once said that being poor in America, the working poor, it's one long emergency because your your financial situation is so precarious that if your car breaks down, if you're laid off, uh, your entire life crumbles. And there's a moment and I think uh, she's a bartender in the book – uh, and that happens. Of course, the bar is closed. Uh, and she admits that she was an alcoholic. She had been sober and she goes right back into the drinking. Um, so talk about that precariousness. We know the financial cost, but th throughout the book, there's a very deep emotional and psychological cost. There is. And I think like one of the things that I hope people take away from the book and from this moment that we are in, this moment of, of labor unrest and worker action is that so many of these problems existed long before COVID-19 ever hit our shores, right? Um, you know, workers who have been going on strike the past two years, these are long brewing problems. You know, we are headed towards a national rail shutdown because of problems that have been brewing in the industry for decades, right? I mentioned that because um, up till COVID-19 hit in 2020, so many people were living so close to the bone. There was study after study saying that, you know, one unexpected emergency expense would be enough to throw people into financial ruin to the point of potentially losing the roof over their heads, so on and so forth, right? This is the reality that working people have been living in for a long time time. Since the 1980s, working people in this country have been more productive than they ever have been. And yet, the they share in less of the fruits of that productivity while more of it gets pocketed uh, by the 1%. Well, the, the New York Times ran a story a couple years ago that said that if wages kept pace with productivity, the minimum wage would be $20 an hour. Yeah. And yet, minimum. federal minimum remains 725. It remains 725 in places like Texas. And I, this is something that, again, really comes through in the book, right, is that because of how much we have kind of limited the economic path to like, you know, a comfortable, dignified life for working people, so many people were, you know, right on the edge when something like COVID-19 hit. Then you add on top of that the ways that we have hollowed out 
the social safety nets and public institutions that are supposed to protect people in that sort of environment. So Ashley, the bartender uh, in Portland, also describes um, trying to get unemployment when the system essentially buckled. My parents couldn't get unemployment for weeks because that system was buckling. But isn't under this pressure. they were talking about putting it on? The, they were trying to call the unemployment office. They just put it on auto dial. Yeah. So keep calling and calling. I just have a couple minutes left. You did mention the uh, supplemental income and checks and extension of unemployment benefits, and that's a theme in the book. And it turned out to be very, very important. All of that has ended, of course. Right. Yeah. So, like, I think one of the things that workers that who I talked to for this book are sort of conflicted about is that they say, like, yes, for all the ways that the government, the market, the media failed us, the fact of getting, you know, one stimulus check, the unextended, the extended unemployment benefits, the eviction moratorium, the pause on student debt payments, the child tax care, the child um, health care tax credits. Um, those were a major boon for a lot of folks who, again, were living so close to the bone to the point where they could actually some would make more on unemployment than they could working in the early days of the pandemic. And that, they tell me, you know, gave them a chance to actually stop from the rat race for just a second and think, is this what I want to be doing with my life? Like, should I be working somewhere where I'm treated better, right? Should I quit my job and go look elsewhere? Or should I stay at my job and demand better pay, right? And yet, the order-giving class could not let that happen. And so they ripped away pandemic-era, you know, vital social aid. And now they are jacking up prices on everybody, clawing all those gains back and calling it inflation. And and we still haven't raised the federal minimum wage. So you're seeing a real class struggle here. I think we should be clear that most of this, most of these programs were initiated by Donald Trump mm-hmm. and most of them were ended by Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, like it was paradigm, potentially paradigm shifting, especially if you compare it to how we responded to the financial crash in 2008, right? Families like mine were left to fall into the abyss yeah. while the uh, everyone threw their weight behind the banks and the big corporations. Like, you know, what Donald Trump started by putting money directly in people's pockets, you know, was, was a huge um, change in policy. And unfortunately, it seems like we're doing everything we can to unlearn the potential lesson that we could have learned from that. I just want to close just quickly on mental health, because that's another theme that runs through most of the interviews. There's huge mental health struggles, not only among the people you interview, but also many of those people you interview, a teacher, for instance, and they have to deal with, and they don't have any resources. They don't. I mean, right now, the entire country is talking about learning loss for students. And as Rebecca Gorelli, an educator in Arizona and an organizer, tells me, she's like, no one is more concerned, apart from parents, no one's more concerned with students' mental health than us because we have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Of course, uh, teachers care about students' mental health, their learning loss, their ability to kind of develop socially. But if we cared about that as a society, we would have cared about that for decades leading up to this point when... Um, resources like counselors on on campus have been hollowed out. And, you know, there are so many ways that we can actually take care of our students and our educators, but we actually have to listen to what the educators are saying. And unfortunately, that's not what's happening right now. Great. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 